episode 50 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. <laughs> Indeed we are. Hello there, mate. Did you say episode 50? I did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How did we get there? <laughs> Slowly but surely. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've a very different episode of the podcast for our 50th show where we're joined by John Smerzel, who, Ben, when we reached out to him, well, he came back with an an enthusiasm for the idea that I don't think we were expecting. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was, I'm remembering the sort of journey to it, mate. I remember going out on Record Store Day and picking up the, the Attic Takes final, um, the Brainiac release that John put together um, from, from the Brainiac archive. And just thinking, just having that moment, thinking maybe, just maybe, and just rattling off a very, very quick email to him. And then he came back and with such enthusiasm, like you say, and also he just kind of hit the nail on the head with the, you know, the idea of demos and his his love of making demos that just, it kind of just reeled out enthusiasm, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And then uh, it kind of ramped up the uh the idea of um using a demo as a jumping off point for a conversation about your music making and creativity and stuff by uh john suggesting that we actually track his musical career if you like through five demos yeah um, which is what we've ended up doing it is and i i loved the way that he kind of um put that out into the forum as a possible suggestion and then we we came back with some positivity and he just ran with it didn't he and when at the final point when he came back and and sent five tracks over um with such kind of generosity and and spirit and stories to, attached to them um and then it's it kind of carried through very much in all the communications with john and in the throughout the feel of the conversation we had with him, this just spirit of generosity and giving, and a, a willingness to kind of share of his experience as a musician that I really, really valued. Yeah, he's an excellent human being, and, and I think, it, but it was a cha- a challenge to the format, wasn't it? And for uh, for our fiftieth episode, it was a challenge to the format. And to be totally honest, I wasn't sure if it was going to work. And actually, in the in, at the sort of the lead up to the interview john was saying yeah you know we don't have to do that if we don't want to but what he'd given us was so rich and there was so much to it and it just made on paper it made sense even though it was maybe slightly more difficult to navigate through uh, as an interview than the previous 49 episodes of <laughs> it was it was you're right you, you hit the nail on the head mate i think the only thing that might have helped would be would have been like another two days of conversation with him and then we might have got <laughs> we might have wheedled out all the stories but yeah it was like you say a difficult one to navigate but a thoroughly worthwhile um journey that we took uh you know we took with it i think oh yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a real celebration of the art of demo making <laughs> from, you know, from the uh, the first track that, that is in there is a, is a Brainiac song, which is sort of the jumping off point for, for, for speaking with John and, um, and the fact that that demo ended up on a record. And he talks about that, you know, in, in a lot of detail and the sort of the story behind it, the, the making of it and the process of it ended up on the record. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation around that, but then, you know, subsequent bands and subsequent projects and the, the, um, how they sort of fit with his 
creative career but also the that like you said before the love of making demos oh yeah yeah it it works really well doesn't it yeah no and he talks that he describes the kind of sense of urgency in the making of a demo and and something that we've referenced about which before which is about what can be so fantastic about demo that sometimes you are chasing that moment trying to recapture it and it's it's not always possible. And John was very much of the opinion like, well, if you can't recapture the moment, then maybe you've captured it already. Maybe that first take is the one that you go with. And why doesn't that go on a record? And that, you know, that fits some of the tracks that that, that he talked about. And also this idea of, I loved it. He gave a description about um, the writing process in time of searching alone at home at night. And just, you could really kind of, picture it vividly in your mind and then some of the stories that he that he offered up from some of the songs that the listener's going to come to were um were just kind of pinpointed moments in time exactly like that for john didn't they it's an absolutely perfect 50th episode i think um with what john's brought to us and uh the kind of refocusing on the art and the impact of demo making and people's different approaches and it's made me think about other conversations we've had with had we've had with people um over the past 50 episodes and well what are your thoughts about reaching episode 50 well, <laughs> it's it's a, a brilliant sense of achievement and I, I love the fact that um that in this episode with with john that it, it tracks and captured some of the main themes that we've had in our conversations with people they all came to the fore with this in that the capture you know the demo stuff that we've just been referencing um and that specific moment of creativity stuff around the importance of the critical component as john described it of being in a band the kind of membership the gang mentality the spirit of all of it all the way that um and also the about finding your own people the way that somehow people gravitate towards each other to find themselves in certain moments of time. And of course, we came back to the welcome um, kind of uh, theme around DIY and how, you know, how far that can take you. And John, again, gave some brilliant uh, examples of that. Uh, what about for you then? What does, what does episode 50 um, represent for you, Steve? I think, um, although they're kind of in some ways, a little arbitrary milestone numbers like 50, 50th episode and uh, 100th episode and that sort of, but getting to episode 50 feels really nice. It's a, it's a lot, you know, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a lot for, you know, for us just, you know, in our respective, uh, I'm not even going to say studios, living uh, at spare rooms <laughs> in North Wales in London and speaking to people around the world and the, and the joys of doing that, that are, manifold and and happen routinely through doing this podcast um i feel massively grateful for all of those 50 conversations and all the people that have that have contributed um their music and their thoughts and their time to for the conversations we've had and i can't you know i can't wait to do more um I'm, i'm also feel very grateful to the people that have listened and downloaded and supported us um to andy and the team at radio fandango who um perhaps some people might not know but the the podcast also goes out on radio fandango which is a brilliant um online radio station which is championing um new music 
and um, and independent music making, uh, and it's and it's absolutely brilliant and very much worth checking out and uh, and uh, giving some time to. Um, and I would also like to say we're not sponsored by anybody. We don't not have yet. any <laughs> patriots, not not yet. We don't have any patriots. I mean, you know, and we don't even want Squarespace. We don't. We, we know we don't want a Squarespace. <laughs> if we want a website making company to sponsor us, we would choose Focus New Media in Altrincham. Uh, and you could do a lot worse than contacting Focus New Media <laughs> to get for all your web design needs because they are quite brilliant. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Will. Um, but yeah, please do help us spread the word. Um, fax your mum again. And, uh, <laughs> fax your mum again because she hasn't come back to you. And uh, 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 yeah, like and subscribe and help us help us get the word out. And there's 50 episodes to go back through now, and it's all for free. And um, Thank you to everybody who has encouraged and supported us. It means a lot. Yeah. And if this is your first time, why not start with uh, episode 50 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with John Schmerzel. Hi, I'm John Schmerzel. And uh, I've been playing music for, gosh, like 25 years or whatever. Uh, And so, yeah, this first demo is from... Uh, when I was in Brainiac, and just to set it up a little bit, I guess, uh, basically, you know, I find your podcast is pretty interesting, the the discussion of what demos, what is a demo, uh, and you guys kind of started off by sort of like the padded, idea of padded envelope is sort of like when bands sending in an actual demo that they've constructed to either a label or a fanzine or whatever it was. That's sort of where the padded envelope part comes in. But, uh, I mean, I kind of like to think that a demo, like what really is a demo in the end, you know? Like there are definitely things that that don't ever see the light of day that's called a demo. And there, there are definitely things that are like proper releases that are still demos. And uh, I guess the thing about this this Brainiac tune is, you know, when I joined the band, it, it, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't really like, I was trying quite hard to, to, uh, you know, insert myself as much as I could into the situation. But of course it it wasn't my band. And, uh, you know, I gave Tim things that I was working on all the time and he was, you know, he was very, uh, the judgment was was hard, rightfully so, about about sort of you know what what could and would constitute being Brainiac song, and I guess this was surprising to me because I gave him this thing, and he was just like, "That's it. This is like this is great," and it went onto the record just as it was, and it was you know the only take that was ever done of this thing, and I mean you can feel it in it's it's about the urgency and that's sort of what 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 i think constitutes uh what makes demos great is sort of that that primal urgency that you can't really capture again and a lot of times when people try and redo things in the studio it's they just can't there's no way to perform something you know create that urgency again you can create a different kind of urgency um, but sometimes 
it's never the same as as that first one and so so that's uh my setup for meat hook manicure Lots of, lots of the communications that we had between us sort of leading up to this conversation and it has taken quite a while to get to this point um, were about about how important that immediacy of uh, the sort of first hit, the capturing lightning in the bottle uh, moment of making a demo has become for you, not just at that starting point, but throughout your musical journey. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean thinking of it back then you know studio time also is really it's expensive it's not it's not something that that you know comes lightly and so i mean it's it's not untrue today but you know bands really rehearsed for it in earnest to to you know to get to that point to do those things and so a lot of things you if you had a four track or some means to you know create something on your own, you know, a lot of times you would rehearse endlessly in order to, to then make said kind of a demo you would create to put inside of a padded envelope or whatever the case may be. But some of these things are, yes, they're just like, uh, you know, like searching at home alone sometimes. And I think that that, that part of that discovery is is something that Tim and I both really enjoyed and and looked to and other things that we sought out like um i we were both fans of uh i don't know if you've heard any of the hazel atkins records for instance that were reissued on norton uh back in the 90s and stuff but um he's like sort of a he was from uh the appalachian west virginia and so forth and he uh his demos are basically, they're, I mean, you know, you want to call them demos or whatever. They were recordings, but they're just sort of like him. He was a one-man band uh, recording himself, and they're just like maniacal, like, you know, one-take performances. And I, we both really admired that sort of, you know, uh, you know, raw 
essence of something coming out like that. And so uh, whether consciously or not, you know, I think that that being in the moment alone or just in your own space, you know, uh, not in the studio where where things kind of sort of take on a more, you know, serious quality to it that's it's it's hard to capture and i think in the 90s especially when things were kind of you know there was a lot of people recording things uh via four track the whole lo-fi kind of movement that erupted there was a carefulness to not really go into that vein like we didn't really self-release a lot of stuff but some things were elevated from four track or home recordings like into the studio and so like let's say something was was considered that sort of the the raw vitalness of, of what you were going for you know we might transfer a bit of that onto tape in the studio and then sort of overdub from there so some of those kinds of home recorded ideas did get elevated into a studio setting and that's sort of like what i think i've I've sort of learned a lot from and, and carried forward into the the next, you know, century when digital recording became, you know, the thing basically. Because uh, you could because you could actually take something that you didn't feel like you could perform again and sort of elevate and record around it, you know, and and sort of that's sort of been like uh, a constant throughout you know, the last bunch of years I've been working on music. I'm sure we're going to come back to some of that stuff that you've, that you've just talked about there. But I was wondering when you were speaking about the um, the environment that um, and the circumstances that Meat Hook Manicure came together, given that uh, it ended up on the record, um, if you could describe a little bit about the, 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 what the situation for putting that together. And also when you were putting that demo together, did it kind of st- stand out to you did it jump out as you as something sort of sort more something more special than some of the other work that you've been doing i mean okay so like i recorded that in the basement of the house that we lived and rehearsed in and uh so i think like a lot of a lot of times when people make something or just trying to get something down and i was just literally trying to to get it down because i had the idea and i wrote down a lyric for it and so I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And then basically I just kind of, you know, got the guitar sound I wanted. And, uh, you know, I, I basically just just did it without thinking about it. And, um, you know, I thought as an idea, I thought it was was good and exciting. I thought I thought, Tim, like I, I felt hopeful about it, I guess. But uh, the fact that he, I didn't ever really think that, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of like, whatever, like we weren't even close to recording the record quite yet. We were building up toward that. And the fact that, I mean, it's the only piece of music on that record, or I think many, any Brainiac record that it's actually like, we didn't do anything to it. He, he just thought it was good as was. And so, uh what one of the things that happens in that recording is when i recorded the vocal i used this like kind of bullet style harmonica microphone and basically it had a it had a short in the cable 
And so I had to hold it kind of still uh, while, <laughs> while I was doing the vocals. And then basically what you hear is I, I took off the headphones and they're feeding back quite wildly sort of during what it, what ends up being the, like the solo, it, the solo is just like feedback and the cable failing. And I so, was going to ask, the, I was going to ask what that sound was. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's just literally headphone feedback and the cable, uh, you know, that the microphone itself, it was just, you know, it goes directly. It's one of those built in cables. So there was nothing I could, I could do about it, but you know, it's, it's that- is, is that like um, when, when you listen to it now, John, is that an instant tra- transport back to the moment of being in the basement of the house, making that, putting that track together? Oh, yeah, I can I can picture it all very, very well. I loved your honesty in, in describing the fact that you said uh, you said Tim was critical as a mentor. And I'm just wondering how apprehensive you were about putting stuff out there for him to, to listen to and appraise. I mean, I think that part of it i look at it more like um i was probably very annoying at the time maybe you know like i when i joined the band you know they were like they were they were they were receptive to me being in the band but i was also i think he was quite guarded about you know just like how inf- how much i was allowed to be influenced you know or whatever he wanted to show me that you know it was still his band and so you know, it was kind of more just like uh, giving me boundaries, which were were good for me to have because I didn't, you know, he, it was his band. He knew what he wanted to do. And I, I mean, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, I had a lot of ideas basically, but I, I, I definitely didn't know exactly what I was doing or, or what I was up to. And so I, I mean, I appreciated that, I, but I wasn't, I also wasn't afraid. And so I think that part of that was just, kind of creating, you know, uh, good boundaries, really. Uh, and honestly, I was surprised, even though I, I thought that, that it was a good idea. Um, I was surprised that he was he was taken by it and that it ended up on the record as it did. So when you hear it back now, is there anything that you wish you'd, you'd done or overdubbed or changed or, or are, you, are you happy with it? Too? I mean, like I said, it is, it is sort of what it is. I guess if anything, I hadn't been like, I'd been the singer in a hardcore band when I was in high school and I'd been making demos, but I still wasn't, I still did, wasn't very uh, good at or used to singing. So if anything, I don't like the sound of my voice in it that much. But it sort of is what it is, you know. It's it's uh it's of the time, so yeah. How, how do you see that um that sort of uh, working partnership with Tim and with the the sort of uniqueness of Brainiac in terms of your development as a as a songwriter? Well, I feel really lucky, I guess, if anything, because you know, uh, joining that band when I did, uh, the drummer Tyler and I were mates in high school and we played in said hardcore band. It was called Sunken Giraffe. And uh, just basically being able to, you know, I think that there's a critical component in being in a band that's so much about the the membership, the gang, you know, of it all. And 
and not a lot of people, you know, part of that keeps bands together for however long it does. You know, there's a lot of musicians that, that don't have like, uh, if they, if they, if they don't have that anymore, then it's lost. They can't, they, they find it hard to play music, you know, uh, like some people only find that connection once in their lifetime, you know, and then they, they, it, it never happens again. And I, I guess I feel lucky because I had that in high school with Tyler and then I joined this band that I was a fan of that I had, you know, a close friend in. we were basically like two dynamics. It was me and Tyler been together for, you know, years in high school and Tim and Juan were also high school mates. And so we had this kind of unique dynamic where, you know, we were five years apart, but we, we sort of had like this kind of this, these working duality and, um, you know, I think going forward, I've been lucky to have experienced that several times over, you know, uh, Enan was a different partnership, uh, of people and even joining dance band being in caribou. I feel it's the same way. It's like, uh, it's just great to have a camaraderie and sort of a, a, a sense of, of, community that you can kind of trust in a in a group we um we interviewed terry bickers from the house of love many years ago now for another for another project and i and something that he said um when we were talking to him has always stayed with me and it's it sort of came back to me when you were speaking then about he meant he talked about um how uh, he when it gets to the end of a project and you think that's it i'm just i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pick up my guitar i'm not gonna get back involved with the band and then it'll just be a matter of you know days or weeks and then he'll just get the itch and want to reconnect and get back into playing music again and he has more of his life has been in in a band than not uh and just kind of needs it you know it's a really important outlet um there's a certain amount i I always kind of consider that there's a certain amount of like psyching up to doing something like that you know going back to the well as an element of that do, do, do you have that or is it just such a need that um, you've, you've got a kind of that, that energy for it is just there for you? I mean, it's strange. I think it's changed a lot over time. Like uh, you were asking me sort of like, it's funny to think like how I felt about like that Me Hook Manicure track because it was so long ago. And I don't think that part of it for me is that I've, I haven't spent a whole lot of time over time, like mulling over what I have done, I'm not ashamed of, or like, you know, it's not like I don't want to visit things, but it was always more about moving forward. And, you know, when the pandemic happened and I started going through, we were just doing a huge overhaul in the house and just trying to simplify things and get rid of stuff. And then I got to, you know, the suitcases of cassettes and stuff. And I'm just sort of like, why do I have these things and what am I like, what is the purpose of holding onto them if, if I'm not going to do something with it? And I sort of realized that I've been kind of sitting on, on a lot of this Brainiac stuff for a long time. And, and so it became about the time to go through that. But I think that, uh, you know, over time, I think that that urgency has always been like about moving forward and trying to work on new things Whereas now in my life, I mean, I, I 
honestly haven't like tried to instigate many any new ideas for a long while i've been like with crooks on tape what we do is we live record uh we just get together and improvise and we multi-track it and um like most of that most of the time after that happens i'm just literally like listening to these documents and like chopping out the nonsense and or maybe like you know if if it's sort of in the framework of a song a lot of it is like based off of loops and so i might turn i might like write a melody for it and put it over top and then it'll be like a song you know and so anyway it's changed for me because uh i haven't one for like vertical scratchers or whatever we recorded uh in the studio a good while ago and i just didn't have lyrics for the songs and so that's just been sitting around waiting for me to like kind of finish those things uh but so like it's a different kind of urgency like i have an urgency to sort of like i want to get things right and finish them but it's like i'm actually not really actively making much demos right now they're just more i i've sort of like you know let that go a bit actually like this the, the whole urgency that we're talking about in in what what is what makes a demo great or you know a, a captivating piece is uh actually very far away from what i'm doing day to day these days it's more just about trying to either finish things or you know kind of like going through this long archive of recordings and stuff so what's the what's the desire for you in terms of finding a route back into having more of that opportunities to demo to make those kind of demos the stuff that hits the spot for you john i mean i don't know that's a good question i think uh like it's it's for me it's kind of more a matter of time and changing things up there was a good amount of time where i i was a bit burnt out uh I mean, just from touring and just literally my ears are burnt out. Uh, I do suffer quite a bit from tinnitus. And so there are times that I just need to spend time, you know, when I'm not playing shows or whatever, just not recording or, or thinking about that kind of stuff. And um, I mean, I think it's also good to take a break because, you know, then it, then it, then all of a sudden it becomes fresh again but i used to have more ideas that would just come to me and then i would have to, i would want to run to like either a recorder or a guitar to like just kind of get it down in some way and that is also happening happening less more but but like i said there's really so much work quote unquote that i have to do as far as like the bands that i'm in like i i'd feel like i could never sit down to do that demo process thing of, of like trying to sort of force some kind of stream of consciousness thing and there's plenty of like releases you know music to finish and deliver at this point that you know what i mean like i like i feel like that process is there and and it will come out again but but there's there's just there's like plenty of things still to work on i guess is what i'm saying you know uh-huh uh-huh I think there's a there's a lot of strands that we haven't kind of unpicked 
yet from lots of the conversations so far, but it feels like it would be a good opportunity to take you back to the very beginning and ask you about when was the first time that you found a guitar in your hand and started playing music? Uh, well, there were my, my father and my eldest sister, uh, my earliest memory is of them like playing and my father, like, you know, uh, like maybe playing a song before I went to sleep. And the odd thing is, is that didn't keep up. Like my family, I don't come from a particularly like musical family. And like, like for instance, Tim's family is his, both his mother and his father were accomplished musicians. Uh, but it was like happening for me at an early age, like after I sort of got the bug and I like, you know, early on, you know, my fingers were too small to sort of like, I, I couldn't really make chords. I tried, but you know, I tried to learn that and sort of put off the guitar. And then eventually, uh, I decided to, I wanted to play bass and, uh, and so that was sort of like my, my real, like when I, my first discipline, I would say is, was learning to play bass. Um, but oddly my, my sister and my father who were kind of my earliest sort of inspirations didn't, didn't really keep it up after my sister went to college and, and got a straight job. You know, she, she didn't keep up with singing and playing and I, same, my father also kind of just, it, the interest sort of died down, but I'm, I'm really happy that it happened when it did. Was the uh, high school hardcore band the, your first band? Yeah. And and uh, do you have any recordings of that? Like Actually, the first time you went into a studio, I do. Oddly, I I I mean, you know, we sort of talked about all these things. I almost was going to uh, bring that into the fold, but there's just so much, you know, it's kind of ambitious already. All this stuff, but uh, as a label in actually in Dayton, Ohio, is going to release said uh, recordings, so. My high school band's record is finally coming out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> tell it. Tell us about how that band came together, John. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, isn't that the the most innocent time for for that kind of stuff? Like, I moved from New Jersey. I was born in Ohio, but my family moved to New Jersey when I was four, and so I was there from four until fourteen. And I had started playing bass when I was still in New Jersey, but you know, like there was a lot of interest in, you know, sort of uh, punk music and stuff like that in in school. But no one I knew played instruments. Like skateboarding and so forth was popular on the East Coast, but kind of still people were generally the people who played music were like, you know, into like the Boss or like Cinderella or like this kind of like sort of glam metal stuff. Uh, so it wasn't until I got to Ohio that I actually met, you know, people who were into the music I was into that were actually, you know, sort of playing like Tyler and, and uh, my friend Jeremy, who started this band, they already were a three piece. Um, I saw them play at the, at the, it was actually, you know, high school starts in ninth grade. Normally it's nine through 12. But when I moved from New Jersey, 
for whatever reason, it was a middle school. So it was seventh. I was in middle school again. Suddenly it was a seventh through ninth grade middle school. And, uh, I saw them play in a talent show. Uh, they just played an instrumental, like this, like kind of weird instrumental punk song. They came out all like, you know, in trench coats and, uh, and played this like maniacal song. And I was like, okay, these, I kind of just felt like these people were like my people or whatever. And, you know, there aren't, it was sort of the opposite, like skateboarding and, 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 uh, sort of, you know, whatever, what we call alternative music now or whatever, wasn't, wasn't really popular in the Midwest when I moved back. So we were sort of the, the misfit outcasts. And so, you know, you find each other pretty quickly anyway, even though I sort of felt like I was being tested, you know, as the new guy or whatever, uh, you know, I was I was eventually accepted and then uh, asked to be the singer of this band. So, how do you feel about the fact that the, the, that music is going to be released now? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's pretty funny. Like, we've always had a very uh, like good sense of humor ab- about that. Even then, I, I remember like you know recording the studio that we recorded and it was called Cro-Magnon recordings. And it was in this warehouse where the punk shows, like it was a, a huge sort of, uh, you know, the, the thing that's very popular now where like a big warehouse gets sort of like subdivided into like loft spaces and stuff. And so the studio was in one part, uh, it was called, you know, the front street warehouses. And in another part of the warehouse warehouses was, uh, like a makeshift venue where we saw, you know, all the music that, you know, for the most, or other venues, but, uh, it was where we saw a lot of, a lot of the things. There was a, a promoter, uh, who happened, you know, to have the wherewithal to bring stuff to Dayton. And so, you know, I saw a lot of early, uh, you know, punk bands, uh, around that time, either regionally or like alternative tentacles bands and stuff like that. And, um, it was like $10 an hour to record there. And I just remember us having like such a blast. Like, you know, we, we rehearsed endlessly to, to do this. Uh, but then once we, we did that, you know, it was like doing gang vocals after the regular, you know, after I did my vocal live, I guess. And then we kind of did some group like gang vocals on certain things, sort of a call and response type part and then just adding the most ridiculous like effects to like parts of it that sound so dated now you know just like at the end of like a stop like suddenly there's reverb for no reason (laughs) at all you know and so these things are just hilarious i mean i think that like for one we were 16 years old um but you know we were really good for 16 yeah so it's like kind of like swims between kind of like uh you know, Metallica, Scales of Justice, and that band, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, they were kind of a thrash metal band uh, called DRI, dealing with it. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of in that sort of camp of things. But we were also very into, like, the Dead Milkmen and the Dead Kennedys, and the lyrics are, like, incredibly, like, you know, they're about environmental issues. And, you know, I mean, basically what's missing right now and no one's 
we're, we all know that the environment's an issue, but we were, we were kind of like preaching about this stuff at 16 years old, which I, I find very endearing now. Did you get to share some bill, uh, you know, share bills with some of the, the bands that you were influenced by? Uh, none of those in particular, but, you know, I mean, trying to think, I mean, one of the bands that was a big influence was a local band called Haunting Souls. And they, the singer, I wrote about it a little bit in the, in the, uh, liner notes to the attic tapes, but, uh, the singer went on to, he, he ended up playing, uh, became the singer of what was, another uh local band called toxic reasons they started in in dayton and eventually moved elsewhere uh and he became the singer for them and toured but um trying to think of some of the bands that we opened for i mean you know like early incarnation of green day came through no effects uh victims family uh uh millions of dead cops um, you know, like a lot of the alternative tentacles, West Coast kind of punk scene. Uh, but, it, you know, the promoter in town was really great. He he was very aware of all, all the things. And, you know, we got even got Italian bands like Negazioni and um, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, Oi Polloi and sort of, you know, some bands from the UK. Uh uh trying to think who else but no i mean you know i guess more than anything what i what my takeaway from that was just it was great to be exposed to all these kinds of bands on a more like local level they weren't you know they weren't like truly famous bands or whatever but you know now like for instance bands like no effects and these kinds of punk bands you know are are our household names really uh but the more important part to me was sort of the the locality aspect, you know, uh, this band, the haunting souls I was talking about, like they were truly to me, like really important local heroes. I saw them play countless times and, uh, you know, a band from Cleveland called knife dance, which was, uh, you know, I mean, they're not very well known. They're known within Ohio, but, I, I can truly say it was one of the most terrifying and exciting shows that I'd, I'd ever seen. And so those kinds of local experiences were, were really, you know, important to me in my youth. You're sort of de- describing they're becoming part of a community of musicians as well. And, and we've talked a lot about the importance of that in the podcast. Do you, is that something that you recognize? Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, it wasn't there that I met them first, but for instance, yeah, like the, um, you know, Tim and Juan were, were in their sort of scene. They were, you know, a few years older, five years older than me and Tyler. And so they met us because we were, you know, playing, uh, locally around. Uh, I think the first time I met them was at this like kind of more, it was a, like a dance club that did shows sometimes. And, but Tim uh, was roommates with Jamie, the singer of Haunting Souls. So I kind of first got, you know, got to know him a little bit better because they were roommates. And eventually me and Jeremy, who were in that, that high school band, after that band kind of broke up, we joined a newer incarnation of that Haunting Souls band and were rehearsing 
in the house where Tim lived and stuff. And this is before, you know, a few years before Brainiac was a thing. So, but you know, yeah, that community, I mean, it seemed almost as if there were like three different kind of scenes happening within the local scene. And there was kind of the more DIY punk thing that was happening. And then there was a proper like bar uh, called Canal Street Tavern that, that had kind of more like, you know, I, I would say is akin to, you know, had local things, but also had like kind of more things in the sort of singer songwriters and folk scene that would come through town. And so, you know, you could see national acts there um, and, and local bands and stuff. And sort of some of those lines blurred, of course, but, you know, uh, when you're in high school, you're not supposed to or allowed to play proper bars either. And so the DIY scene was really like mostly what you did until you either were able to, you know, fool your way into one of these places or they didn't notice. Has that um, involvement in the DIY scene and in in punk had a lasting influence on your attitude to how you carry yourself, John? I mean, I, I think without even thinking about it, but, I mean, what's what's kind of lucky is that, you know, uh, like Tim and Juan were kind of coming more out of that bar scene for starters. And then by the time I joined the band, you know, just the influence of our, our entire like group of people in our community, I think that it was really embedded in, in both Tim and Juan that that being the D, like being DIY was was the most important thing. And also not staying too local. I think that a lot of bands, when they start out, they kind of get really sort of stuck in their locality and they, they sort of get fixated on being like the best band in town or something like that. And, and they just sort of, they sort of burn their local audience out. And, and one of the things that, that I thought was really important that, that uh, was already, you know, the sort of motto of the band was like, don't play in town. Like the last thing you want to do is to play overplay locally. We only played like once or twice a year within, you know, you know, between Cincinnati or Dayton and then to be as on tour as often as possible. The U S presents a really good opportunity for bands to do that in a way that, you know, many other countries, that's not, that's not the case. There's, you know, you can just, it's vast and there's so many you know, places that you can, that you can play. Uh, and at that time, my, you know, there was, there was a, a scene that sort of supported that level of DIY touring. Is that something you were able to tap into? Definitely. I mean, even in high school, I'm, I'm, it's like kind of crazy to think now that, you know, like our high school band played like Fort Wayne, Indiana, or, you know, like we would, we would, try through maximum rock and roll uh, and stuff like that to sort of like network and find shows to play and, and, and or go to just to go get out of town to go see other shows. But I mean, being in the Midwest, it's, it was, you know, there are like now I live on in California and there are like four places to play within 10 hours versus in the Midwest, there are like 10 places to play within four hours, you know? So it's, it's a lot easier to, uh, the Midwest is a pretty, 
rich starting point to tour from because you can kind of do a loop around the East Coast or a loop down through the South or just stay in the Midwest for that matter and go up into Canada. And you can, you know, you can, you can route a pretty significant like 10 day outing without any days off and without traveling all that far, you know, per day. What are the what are the kind of standout experiences for you as a as a teenager going out and playing shows outside of town? What are your key memories of that? Thinking about it now, it's it's just depressing to think that it's it's a uh, it just seems so much more free than you know. As far as like, I don't think anybody really knew what they were doing, and so like you know, promoters were doing it because they really love to do it and. Eventually, you know, some some towns, really small towns, would have very significant things going on because of these people who just put their heart and soul into these networks and getting bands to come through, and Dayton was no exception. But sometimes, you know, after a year or two, uh, promoters get burnt out. They just get they just get wasted on on a lack of love and respect a lot of times to be perfectly honest with you because local bands will get upset that they didn't get paid and they probably didn't but you know a lot of times they don't understand the politics of what's happening you know with the headliner coming through and their guarantee or whatever the agreement is and you know it's a it's it's a it's a thankless job promoting shows and um i mean it certainly was before you know, I'm not saying it's a great job to have now. It's it's actually a, a pretty terrible job from what I can tell when you think about COVID. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of an endless, uh, you know, we've been, we've been chasing our tail as far as the, the schedule being, you know, reshuffled and, and cast into the future. But, you know, back then I just think that, uh, well, it was a much more innocent time. It was cheaper to put on shows. It wasn't so, you know, at this point, like the venues that we've been playing for, you know, the last 25 years, even the 100, you know, 100 to 250 capacity venues are now owned by like, you know, the Clear Channel sort of corporate networks and stuff. They're buying up down into these smaller ones. And so, and, you know, the booking agents and so forth, are much more fixated on, you know, your uh, YouTube views and and social media likes and followers and stuff. And so every, you know, everything is 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 highly data driven. And I just think, kind of that time period, the uh, there's still a DIY network. There are still people putting on shows in basements and so forth. Uh, and, and there are still people discovering cool things that aren't, you know, like being broadcast on the internet, but I just think that like, yeah, that was kind of the way that, that it was then, uh, that was the only way. And, and so I kind of, I, I, I relish sort of that aspect of, of that time period because it was just sort of like about showing up by the skin of your pants and, not knowing what to expect at all and and probably better to expect nothing because you know you're just like the promoter may have been putting on four shows that week and you know like didn't show showed up a half hour after you you know 
it's just, it's made me think of you uh, of the of the, of the um uh, what's his name uh the the, uh, the green room the film with patrick stewart oh yes have you seen, have you seen that movie <laughs> just kind movie. of made, made me think about but let me think about that movie and when you said you, you don't know what you're going to be showing up to <laughs> Yes, that, I've, I've, I've always I've been encouraging people to to uh, see that film. I think it's a, a great, you know, sort of like comedy slash horror movie. Uh, and you can't really, you know, it's hard to give a setup for it without giving too much away. But, I'm, you know, if someone plays music, I'm usually just like, yeah, watch that movie. Cream. Cream. Obviously, the the end of the end of Brainiac is is a pretty tragic story, John, isn't it? And and one that's been been well told. And and you talked about the about the documentary about transmissions after zero as well, which is a which is a really great piece of a great a really great watch. Um, I wonder if you could. Um, well, I was wondering how how one how a person gets over something so monumental as that. But also from that, how did you transition into your into the into the the solo record that you made as John Stuart Mill? Okay, um, I mean, for one, I don't I don't know if I ever did get over it, you know, or uh, like I think transitioning is kind of more like, you know, at the time when it happened, it was so jarring to all of us and I think that you just kind of move forward you know in any way uh I the week before Tim got into his accident I got into a car accident myself and totaled the car I was fine but you know I basically didn't have a mode of transportation anymore I was living in I'd actually moved down to Cincinnati and then into Newport Kentucky which is just across the river I was living in this, uh, what was the Masonic Temple of Newport on the top, like or the middle floor or whatever. And uh, basically I was where I had a bar job when um, I wasn't on tour ma- making food in this, in this bar that was in Cincinnati. And so suddenly I didn't have a mode of transportation for that. And then a week later, Tim got in his car accident. And so I, I was basically like, okay, everything's over now. And I live in like downtown Newport, Kentucky. And I, I, I have no mode of transfer. I, I had nothing basically. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, my girlfriend at the time, or we were kind of broken up, basically she had moved to New York and she had suggested that I, I just come there for the summer and just figure things out for myself, uh, which I did. And we rekindled our relationship and I ended up staying. And uh, I think if anything, it was just more about, you know, moving forward. Uh, And I mean, you, you know, you can't really run away from your problems, but you can, you can do something to move forward and just kind of, and that's basically what I did. I, I, uh, but living at the time in Newport was kind of like form. It was sort of like the template of, of, you know, what became the John Stuart Mill stuff. Cause I was very attracted to 
sort of these big open spaces and recording in the ambience of, of these kinds of rooms. And so I was actively making four tracks that were kind of more, you know, they, these things were, were more like what John Stuart Mill became. They weren't, they weren't Brainiac oriented. They were like about like, you know, using acoustic instruments and things in these spaces. And, uh, so anyway, when I, I moved it, that was all kind of, I, I, I look back on that kind of as like being sort of therapy. Like I didn't do that. Those recordings that became that John Stuart Mill record weren't really like, I mean, I didn't think I was making a record. I was just do, you know, I was just making something. And, um, when, I got to New York and started, I also just started playing immediately with, uh, with Rick Lee, who was in the band Skeleton Key. That's where, and he and, uh, Steve Calhoun were also in Skeleton Key. And we had, you know, but one of the last tours Brainiac had done was with Skeleton Key and we really hit it off well. And Rick had already, you know, on tour had these suitcases that he would construct of battery powered, uh, you know, devices, either like basically sound sources, either battery powered turntable. Uh, he had like a tiny, like, um, sort of Japanese video player he had, he would sample from and, uh, like tiny, you know, uh, pocket sized samplers and stuff. And so he would construct these, like these mobile, like music, music rigs. And, uh, you know, I was like, I want to play music with this guy someday. And then, you know, fast forward a year and change later and I'm in New York city and, and he, you know, that's where that band was based. And so we basically just started playing music immediately. And, uh, you know, he, he basically had the same thing as I had. He, you know, he was like, I would like to play music with that guy someday. And then suddenly I'm living in New York city and, and that happened. But I just think it's more, you know, kind of the process of moving forward, the John Stuart Mill recordings and the thing that became the first Union record were kind of happening at the same time. I was just like working on stuff, sort of working through, you know, what happened after, you know, Brainiac not being a thing anymore and Tim being gone. And uh, I developed a relationship with Dave Sardi, who uh, he was in this band Bark Market and he's a, produced a, and recorded many, many records that you, you know. Um, and he was starting up this label at the time and was attracted to both of the things that was, you know, in both Enan and this, these John Stuart Mill recordings. And it was really strange actually uh, to put out that John Stuart Mill record because it, like I said, I, I, once it became like a, a product or whatever, you know, like it was just sort of like, well, are you going to play live? And I mean, I hadn't really thought of it as, yeah, like I didn't really think about the presentation and I certainly wasn't really like prepared to uh, represent these songs and recordings like on a nightly basis. Like I just hadn't even given it any thought and, and so that sort of like jump started me thinking about what, yeah, like being in a band and 
and what it means to make a record again and and then yeah and go out and on tour and stuff like that and so we sort of made Enan be that the vehicle for for doing that again so when when you were recording those the songs for the john stuart mill record you described it as a kind of cathartic process was it do you think you were making the music instinctively was it did it come quite easily well many of those things are are like the idea behind it uh was like i was very into just doing more kind of turn on the recorder and and go without having even like the semblance of of an idea or lyrics so a lot of those what I've discovered over time is that uh, I feel like the whether the demo or the first time I get something down is 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 going to be anything. I've discovered that like when I don't know what I'm going to play on guitar or what I'm going to sing over or what words I'm going to do, when I try and combine all those things at once, uh, it's it's too much for your brain to like really work through and sometimes really great things happen and so that's what that exercise was about it was just like about trying to put down something and um by doing all those things at the same time and and i guess um the most successful ones are the ones that 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 felt the best were the ones that went on the record and then some other things were you know, kind of added to or, or, you know, kind of did become sort of like templates for, uh, you know, a more not produced, but, you know, like I actually worked a little harder at, at something and, or, you know, made a second go at it. When you were 
Um, looking through the tracks to send over to us, what was it about Sherry Red that um, jumped out as a, yeah, that's, that's a good one to share? Well, I mean, for one, the, the Brainiac one is on a record. And so I felt like on some level that was a, a bit cheating, sharing with you guys something that is like, it's been released, but, but, but I, but the story behind it, I thought was, was relevant because I would, I would never have known that it was going to become, you know, as was the, you know, something that came out on a record and uh, like that cherry red thing, I think it's just, uh, so one of the things that I had at the time I found in a junk shop and I remember going into it and I just was looking constantly looking for speakers and just like whatever equipment I asked they had any speakers and the gentleman directed me to this this contraption and I'm like oh this isn't a speaker and I didn't know what it was but basically I plugged in and pulled over there was kind of like this this like slide on it that had like a couple different like contraptions on it it's hard to describe and i moved it over and the thing turned on and all of a sudden it started playing drum sounds and it sounded so good and i immediately just turned it off and asked what else he had (laughs) and he showed me around the place and then i basically i offered this guy like 25 dollars for this thing and later i found out it was called it's a chamberlain which I don't know if you're familiar, but the company Mellotron uh, that makes, you know, like the the tape sampled keyboards and stuff uh-huh. like that. Chamberlain was, you know, similar. Uh, and this happened to be like a, a, basically a tape loop mechanism with, 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 with drum loops on it and stuff like that. And, so anyway, you know, by the time I moved to New York, I I found out how rare this thing was. And it's, you know, there like there were hardly any of them made. Like I, I mean, I may it may have been in the, you know, teens or twenties or whatever the of of numbers of this thing. So anyway, I used that for I used it on Enon Records and I used it on uh the John Stuart Mill record and the drum track that you hear is is basically like I think two or three of the loops on that, but it was very interesting because it, it operated on, on tape, these loops. And then one of the mechanisms, there was this, the slider, you could push it down and engage it into one of the tracks. And then there was this little like separate lever that would like glide across the, the piece of particular tape to play different parts of, of that particular piece of tape. So it could add in like, hi-hat or i mean it was just very like (laughs) that's amazing yeah so that recording uh the cherry red has uh you know you can just hear i mean they're old recordings of drums and they just sound fantastic and um you know it just basically i was trying to use that machine as often as i could to uh sort of muster a quality that would go along with with those loops uh to you know and so that that was kind of sort of about adapting uh you know sort of a style uh within the the sound of of what was happening on those those you know percussion sounds 
Do you still have it and do you still come uh, go back to use it sometimes? I don't and I don't feel bad about getting rid of it. Um I I I mean, you know, you use something and I I was afraid for how I mean, the fact that these I don't even the idea of constructing a machine like this is so bananas to me. And you know, it could have easily I, I just knew that at some point I I don't live in a temperature controlled environment or whatever. I certainly didn't have air conditioning or anything like that back then. And the idea that this thing would like kind of break down and I'd probably have to pay thousands of dollars to repair it or even find somebody who knew how to repair it. Um, but anyway, I ended up selling it for a few thousand dollars and I purchased um, a rack of very, very great Mike Pre's uh, that are also quite old and lovely, a, a pair of Longevin AM4s, which uh, is the same, uh, you know, Pre's on the desk that uh, they used to make the band's songs um, from Big Pink. So anyway, it was a good trade-off in the end. I know. I was just... I was just thinking, um, it sounds like that particular record that like you moved on pretty quickly from it. And I just wonder what your reflections are on it when you listen to it these days, John. Well, I mean, like I said, I, it, I, I wasn't embarrassed, but I think from a perspective of, I mean, I'd already been in a band for several years and, you know, this, we were, whatever, potentially about to sign a big contract, blah, blah, blah. But I, somehow I went back into this weird introverted place and I don't really think that I had the, I, I wasn't really thinking about it as like starting a thing related to any of, any of that thing about being in a band or, or making a thing. I was just kind of working through it. And I mean, years later, thinking people have come up to me and said, you know, how much they really love that record. And I think that's I think that's the more important takeaway is because I kind of did it and realized that it wasn't something I wanted to turn into like a band or or a live presentation. And so then it was about doing Enon for for the next bunch of years. And it's just been really nice that, you know, people still come back and say like how much they really like that record as a private experience. Like it's, it, 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 it still resonates basically. And so that, that feels good. So Enon was a, was a, an active band for, for like a, a, a decade or more. Is that right? Yeah, we started, uh, I mean, essentially when I moved to New York in 98 um, and the band kind of, more or less ended in 2009. Uh, so yeah, a little over a decade. I mean, you mentioned before about um, getting together with the guys from... Um... Galton Key, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was quite a natural thing. You'd, been, you'd kind of been waiting for that to happen. How was it? How was that when it was finally realized? Well, I mean, it all happened quite fast. Like I said, moving to New York and then kind of just finding, you know... I was there with my girlfriend and then just sort of like, you know, 
hooking up with people that I knew from touring that lived in New York and making new friends. And so it was quite quick that like Rick and I were making music in just on samplers in my apartment. And then eventually that transcended into me, him and Steve playing together in a room and it becoming a band. Um, and then, you know, but, uh, I mean, it started out from a place where like there was the first Enon seven inch was, I think probably somewhere between like these kind of John Stuart Mill style, like home recordings and, and what Enon became kind of more, you know, uh, but, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't like a band style recording. They were, they were basically homebrewed recordings. And then, you know, it was around then that I got a, a computer with, you know, like a, basically a, a, had, you know, stereo RCA ins for it. So I would do stuff on four track and then transport four track recordings into the computer, which is sort of like the template for how everything since has kind of been done as far as like realizing like, Oh, I really like this aspect to this, to this, you know, this recording and then being able to elevate that into what ends up becoming, you know, on the record. But, you know, it's also, it's just funny to think because I think back then, you know, it, it's very easy to get obsessed with nuances about a recording uh, and you know when it's there, it's there. Like if 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 something is the way that it is, and you don't need to, you know, that doesn't need any fiddling at all. But just becoming obsessed with the detail that actually no one else actually cares about you know, <laughs> like, is is a real funny thing to kind of also get through and uh, you know work over, I guess. Because especially now, it's like I when I think about how much I. I pour over something like whatever lyrics or something that no, I mean, like no one else is ever going to care, you know, it, in the end. I mean, it's great when you find someone that's like, Oh, I really appreciate this or that. But I mean, you know, no one's ever going to care as much as, as you do about these details. Oh God, that's so familiar. <laughs> a zillimeter to the left, mate. Yeah, exactly. Um, John, you came from Brainiac, which were, which had a, a band with a very unique sound, and you and then you create Enon, which equally has a very unique sound all of its own. How much kind of conscious discussion was there between you as musicians in terms of what the, you wanted the music to sound like? Well the end of like ending Brainiac and I think at the time, even just like where we were at before Tim died, I was starting to struggle with uh, like as a guitar player with sort of what we, what we had created up until then. Like I started feeling like I was, I, you know, I didn't, I, I felt kind of stuck in sort of the, the, um, you know, the tunings and, and, and stuff that we we're using. So I was already trying to think about how I could, you know, augment that a little bit more for my own personal playing within that band. And so when that, you know, when Tim died and, and I was in New York for one, you know, collaborating with Rick immediately, he kind of had his own uh, sort of style with, 
you know, these uh, battery powered little, you know, sampling suitcase setups. And at the end of the, of Brainiac, I was getting into, we, we basically were, you know, getting more into, uh, you know, digital synthesizers and, you know, sampling and stuff like that. And so that was sort of where he and I were, were meeting up and really Enan ended up, you know, the very beginning of Enan, which was just me and Rick in a closet sized room, you know, like jamming on samplers is essentially where the beginning of Crooks on Tape. I mean, what we do in Crooks on Tape is, is literally just like the three of us getting together and it, but it's a bit more like, um, because it's, we're playing live with a drummer it's, and it's improvised. It's, it's a bit more, you know, kind of proggy at times. Um, but did I answer the question? I don't, Yes, I think I think it did, and, I, and I, I, I was just—it was—it was a very nice segue into Crooks on Tape as well.
I could have picked any many things from the crooks. There's nothing really in particular about that track. It's just kind of just more like what I think sort of getting back to what you guys do. It's like that band is really just kind of about documenting everything. And so it's to me like just, I think a good example of that band just, you know, kind of producing something together that, you know, just happened basically. And um, those are, those are the things that excite me now. Like I said, I, I haven't really done a lot of like alone sort of, uh, you know, kind of demoing stream of consciousness kind of like tr output to create something. But I think that that band has, is sort of always the outlet for that because we just get together and we, we record literally everything. Like there's, there is hardly any moments outside of like when we play live that isn't multi-tracked. So it's, there's like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's the most daunting aspect actually is just me going through things afterwards and, and, and whatnot. But, um, I, I really like the, the way that that one turned out. So it's when you, so when you describe it as daunting, but I'm assuming that it's quite exciting as well, John. Oh yeah. I only mean daunting in that there's a lot of, a lot of stuff to go through. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, sort of choosing where to start or, or, or whatever. I mean, you know, a lot of it in the end, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting to all of us. Uh, and it's kind of just about finding the right puzzle to put together in order to make a record. Like our first record, we tried to sort of distill it into the closest thing to us being a, pop band sort of uh which is a we're a far cry from being a pop band but you know like i i just think that's sort of the most interesting aspect of of that band is is kind of just you know doing something spontaneous and then trying to make it uh the, the most you know sort of universal and appeal uh, where does it sit in the in the uh discography of uh crooks that 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 track uh i'm gonna say that that was recorded in 2011 and uh as far as the discography it's unreleased so it sits nowhere in the discography <laughs> excellent <laughs> Carrying on to working with with uh, with Rick, but um, did you relocate to Los Angeles for that? And and how much of an influence on the band was was that? Well, so I mean, so Enan began with me and him, and then Steve, and then eventually uh, Toko joined the band. We didn't have basically we were trying very hard to be a band that could exist without having a real like a bass player. Like we thought we were cool cause we didn't have a bass player. Like we can do this without having a bass player. And then we're like, yeah, it would actually be really good to have a bass player and to not, you know, like rely on synthesizer or just like, you know, not, not having that element in a song and trying to figure out how it was going to be processed. So she, she joined the band and then, uh, we switched drummers and actually Tyler's cousin, Matt 
came in um, to play drums, who he now plays with uh, Holy Holy Fuck, if I'm allowed to say that on, on air, fellas. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. And, uh, say again. <laughs> <laughs> have I cussed yet? I, I cuss a lot, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, and eventually we we kind of like Rick was a very complicated person to be in a band with at the time, and he also was sort of in demand, but not like very good at keeping his schedule. So we kind of let him go and became, that's when we became the three piece. And so honestly, when the band ended, uh, Toko and I decided to move to California kind of more. We didn't have a reason to join. I was already starting to play with Caribou. It was more just like an opportunity to, uh, you know, have an, a fresh start basically. And so, we decided to to move to Los Angeles and and yeah, I mean we, we had obviously we had a lot of friends already there and Rick was one of them. And you know, even though it wasn't really a, a bitter thing, uh Rick leaving Enon, but it was always kind of one of the more vexing issues within the band because I think that we all really loved playing with him. And uh, I was very happy to start a new band with him again. So he's kind of my longest, you know, music collaborator. I'm going back to the the Enon track that you that you put forward, the perfect draft, and having just passed the anniversary of of nine eleven, and that kind of fits it to the the that the story of that song, doesn't it, John? I mean, yeah. The crazy thing is that that. Uh, that song was recorded basically a few days before uh, the 9-11 and we were recording a lot during that time. In fact, we recorded, you know, I mean, after that, that was happening that day and you, you know, living in and around that, going out on the street and seeing, you know, one of the towers fall and realize, you know, okay, we were kind of walking towards that direction and then, going back in the house and kind of watching more on TV and not knowing what to do at a certain point, Matt and I were just like, well, let's, we were going to record drums. So let's just go record drums. Like let's do something to, you know, to get our minds off of this. But that track, when I think about that, you know, uh, we had, we had already recorded our record, uh, the second Enon record. And it was kind of like in limbo, the label fell apart. And so that this song, this perfect draft song, I remember there was a baritone guitar uh, in my friend's flat that I was, you know, like kind of house sitting for him while he was out of town. And so I kind of constructed that song. I didn't, I hadn't really played a baritone before, but I basically wrote that song around this baritone guitar and was like, okay, I just decided to record it while I had it down since, you know, there was it was around and i'd you know written that but the song was kind of about you know sort of that frustration about uh one the you know kind of like having a record done and and not being able to like put it out and sort of also just like the bureaucracy of like you know booking tours internationally and and visas and all this kind of stuff because there was a lot, a lot of that had to do with, like you know, uh, for instance, Toko needed visas and stuff at the time, and 
just sort of being in limbo. So it's sort of a, a weird song about about being in limbo. And I mean, you know, little did we know it was going to happen in a few days, uh, which created a, a hole just to change everything, you know. The perfect draft waiting, the postulate pacing the floor signs. Caress your fat, don't conjure that feeling again. Polygraph taking anonymous, waiting alongside. I think we're going to uh, we're going to wind things up, um, and uh, thank you so much for, be, for for this extensive 
conversation. <laughs> it's been so fascinating, and I do get the feeling that we could we could just keep going. Um, we have one more we have one more track to um, that we'll play out with, which is the vertical scratches track. Uh, whatever love you say, um, do you want to introduce that and and set it up for us, John? Well, what can I say about it? I think uh, so. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the speaking that I, I I don't do this so much lately, but hope to get back to it. I think this is sort of the last the last thing that I have done that was uh, falls under that sort of like spontaneous eruption, and uh, you know, it's it's I kind of don't know if it's you know I don't know if if. I c- I'll be able to, I, d- I don't want to, uh, I don't know if it's able to be made, you know, into something more proper or not. I'm, I'm, I'm still vexed with that, but I feel like it, you know, as far as what we were talking about, when you, when you start something from scratch and it, it just has that, that, uh, that sort of feeling that you know we're we're going for um but it's it's there are some things that happen in it that um i just don't i don't think that i would like to i I feel like working at it might ruin it in a way so i've just left it where it is for now it feels like the perfect song to close out on thank you so much for your time john it's been brilliant to talk to you (laughs) yeah thanks john Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 